Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined today by guest co-host Kathleen Vanderwill. Welcome, Kathleen. I'm so glad to be back, Pat. I am so glad you are here, and we have another Berlioz opera. We have Berlioz, which I am apparently trying to become an expert on since this is my third. Yeah. And a sh- it's a Shakespeare-inspired opera. It's perfect for me. <laughs> Tell us the name of this opera. We are doing Beatrice and Benedict by Berlioz. And which Shakespeare play is that based on? It is based on Much Ado About Nothing, which is one of my, it's probably my second favorite, I think, of all of Shakespeare's comedies. One of the most charming. (laughs) And it's a bit of a comic opera, isn't it? Yeah, so this is is the first comic opera, um, opera comique that I think I've done with you, or maybe that I've listened to, there is a good deal of dialogue. I was not expecting that when I listened to it. (laughs) And you can hear a little bit of that overture underneath right now. And I know that you have heard that overture before. Yeah, so this is, you know, you had mentioned to me that this is one of the more famous of Berlioz's pieces and is performed independently of the opera. And I realized that I recognized it when I first listened to it because I think I've, you know, just at some some musical review or symphony, I've, I've heard them play this. <laughs> well, let's listen to a little bit more of the overture, and then we'll be back to tell you about the story of Beatrice and Benedict. Thank you. 
for everyone and this is the opera by Berlioz based on the Shakespearean play Much Ado About Nothing Beatrice and Benedict and you got a little bit more than the overture there we included some of the first piece in the opera by the chorus where they are celebrating the return of the army to Sicily to Messina they have been victorious over the enemy and the townspeople the chorus are welcoming the soldiers back home a celebration. Yes, it's uh, it's the end of war and, and now everybody is back to domestic life and must turn their thoughts to, to other things like perhaps romance. Romance, well, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the governor has a beautiful daughter and, uh, and, and a quite attractive niece, I believe. Yeah, so, so we, at the beginning here, we meet Leonato, who is the yeah he's the governor of the of the area they're in of Messina and he has a daughter Hero and a niece Beatrice who are both very beautiful Hero is always represented as sort of the ideal woman you know she's pure and sweet and and just loving and kind Beatrice uh, is probably one of the more famous characters in the Shakespearean canon at least as is known as a little bit more of a She's not a shrew exactly, but she's got a very sharp wit and she does not let anyone. (laughs) She's sassy. (laughs) She doesn't let anyone get away with anything. Yeah. (laughs) So, of course, she's a lot more fun, to be honest. I know. I always think of Hero as the the ingenue. She's sweet. Mm -hmm. She's innocent. She's just darling. And, And Beatrice, I don't know, I imagine she's a little bit older seems a little bit wiser, mm-hmm. just a little more aware of the world, but but mm-hmm. she's definitely sassy. <laughs> she is. And so the troops have returned and are being celebrated. And Don Pedro is the prince. And he has come to pay tribute to the governor and say, hey, this campaign went well. And can we hang out and rest here for a while? And he's also the general of the, he's the, he's the head yeah. of the army, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's both the prince and the general. And he, in in this version, is totally fine, and nothing is wrong with him. In the Shakespearean version, he's um, he's got a, a a secret evil half brother. But we can get to that later. Yes, yes. Well, interestingly, in the operatic version, he's a speaking role. He is a character, but but he's not a singing role. He's a little bit. Like that, I think almost in the in a metaphorical sense in the Shakespearean, he's kind of he's a representative character in the Shakespeare play. He he sort of just represents like the cardboard cutout of general, prince, head of state, <laughs> just right. like Leonardo kind of does too. Mm. But yes, uh, no secret creepy half brother in this one. But <laughs> but you know, <laughs> we don't have to deal with any of that. Yes. No, um, we can talk. We'll, we will for sure come back to that because uh, his brother's one of my favorite characters. <laughs> yeah, no brother here, but but 
Don Pedro can greet Leonardo and accept all the congratulations <laughs> of the town folk. Mm-hmm. But there are comrades of Don Pedro. Yeah, so Don Pedro has traveled with two of his best best friends and fellow soldiers. There's Claudio, Claudio, and Benedict. And Claudio has always uh, had a thing for Hero, and is and they have they were engaged right before he went off to war. It's mutual. Yes, he's returning <laughs> to a love story that's already in progress, really. Mm-hmm. But Benedict has always had, you know, maybe a bit of a thing for Beatrice, but he would never admit it. They call it, uh, they have a, a merry war betwixt them, is the line yes, in Shakespeare. Yes. So we go from, from real war, and that is over, and now we're back to these two and their, their merry lovers' quarrels. Their war um, of words, yes. <laughs> yeah, and they're both very good at that they're very funny and they're very fast talking they're two of the funniest characters in all of Shakespeare for sure like just the back and forth it's just it's fun to watch it's like a screwball comedy kind of it's that idea but right now these are going to be our main characters along with Ursul who is Hero's maid who will help with some things later on but at the beginning of the opera, the four maybe sort of lovers <laughs> are meeting. Well, the two the two are being reunited, our sweet, yeah. innocent lovers, Claudio and Hero. Mm-hmm. And then there are the two who who seem destined for each other. <laughs> because <laughs> because, because they, who else would have them? <laughs> well, yes, and I think that it might be even said later on. And and it's interesting because you say how beloved they are in the canon of Shakespeare and how much you like them, but that's why Berlioz chose to focus on the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little background on the creation of this opera. This opera was created by Berlioz to inaugurate a brand new theater in Baden-Baden, Germany. This did not premiere in France. It was a French language opera premiered in French language as we're hearing it here, but it premiered in Germany in in the resort town of Baden-Baden, near the French border, and it was commissioned of Berlioz. Berlioz, who had an annual engagement to conduct in that town, was commissioned by the impresario there, the, the, the man who kind of ran the entertainment there, to create an opera. Initially, they wanted him to write an opera based on some portion of the Thirty Years' War. Oh, to wow. S- yeah, right? <laughs> that sounds like a like a really fun piece. Well, <laughs> and, and, it's and a barely, really sad, terrible war. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And, and Berlioz had been struggling through all of the complexities of bringing to life this monumental opera, Les Troyens, this five-act opera that is sometimes cut into pieces and and monumental to produce. Even to this day, it's difficult to produce. Um, when you read through his letters and correspondence, even when other things are going on, it's always peppered with the difficulties that he's encountering with Les Troyens. Mm-hmm. And he finally, even though he said yes, he renegotiates. He says, please, could I do this thing that I've had in mind to do for decades on Beatrice and Benedict? Could I could I just leave the Thirty Years' War to the <laughs> side? Just something I, a little lighter. I think I think your guests are really gonna have fun with this one. <laughs> I think they're gonna have he a, was right. a great time. 
I'm I'm glad that history reflects that choice. I really am. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he 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 really wanted to do this. I mean, it's often written about that this was just a break for him after Les Toyens, but when I read that he had he had to renegotiate <laughs> I thought, oh, he he knew what he needed, this poor man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and he, he, in fact, said of it that it was a caprice written with the point of a needle. Mm. So That's he, beautiful. He, and he also said it was one of the liveliest and most original things that he'd ever written. So he, he quite liked it. And, by the way, he even lost count of how many times he was called up to receive praise from the audience on opening night so it was it was very well received on opening night and very very well received in Germany in fact it had multiple subsequent performances even in German translation which is another amount of difficulty that Berlioz himself conducted but he preferred to do it in French (laughs) well you know sometimes you go to a movie theater and you want to watch Saving Private Ryan, and sometimes you want to watch a romantic comedy, and yeah. you know what? <laughs> he wanted a romantic comedy, and I, you know, I'm fully there for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of romance, after all this celebration of the victors in war, I think we're going to get to hear a little romantic sentiment from Hero. Yeah, she has a very, very beautiful, very famous aria here that we will play for you.
That was Hero singing I Shall See Him, I Shall See Him in Beatrice and Benedict by Hector Berlioz. And Kathleen, I, I want to just make a comment about this aria that Hero sings here. It To me, it's reminiscent of the kind of aria that you hear in older style operas where the characters are really just taking a lot of time to explore their own feelings about what's going on. It reminded me of of Baroque, like Handel-style aria, where she's just really feeling the way she feels about what's happening to her at this moment. No real plot moving forward here, but the beauty of the aria is shining through. And this is a beloved aria within this opera, just for its beauty. And it's funny to see it here contrasted against some of the both the dialogue that is saying so much one of the things that's funny about this opera is i love that you have this beautiful moment where she's just kind of exploring her feelings and not advancing the plot and just sort of saying the same thing over and over again because everybody else in in the story talks way too much (laughs) constantly and they talk a lot of nonsense and they talk themselves in circles and they fight but hero is so uncomplicated in that way like she loves she loves Claudio before the opera starts. She loves him the whole time. They love each other forever. Everybody's happy. There's no, there's no drama. There's no plot. It's just, you know. Yeah, and they get married at the end. Mm-hmm. That's not yeah. a spoiler. You knew they were going to get married. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is very much the definition of the marriage plot kind of story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They get married. But we get to meet some more characters now after she's explored her feelings. Her, her father comes back on the scene. With Don Pedro, a little more congratulations are given, and Benedict is there. Yes, and we get one of the things that is is funny reading the libretto as I was preparing for this is the dialogue between Leonardo, Don Pedro, and Beatrice, you know, with Benedict kind of listening in the background. Um, it's word-perfect Shakespeare, and that's kind of extraordinary. It's exactly the same interchanges and the same jokes and it's that's kind of extraordinary that he went to the lengths that he he did to preserve the the humor and the the wordplay of the original Shakespeare in French for a German audience. That's right. That's right. Well, he wanted it to be popular all over Europe and beyond. Mm-hmm. And did we mention that the libretto was in fact crafted by Berlioz himself from Shakespeare's from a French translation of yeah. Shakespeare's work? It makes sense because he's, I mean, this is really a passion project for him, you can tell. So we, we, we get some some interchanges between those characters and then we finally get what everybody's been waiting for all along, which is uh, an exchange between Benedict and Beatrice. A funny note about it being Benedict and Beatrice and not much to do about nothing. There's a long tradition of them as characters sort of taking over the performance. Uh, yes. When you read the actual Shakespearean play, Hero and Claudio's story is given almost equal weight. Some would say they're even given more screen time than Benedict and Beatrice because it was never really, I think, well, it's hard to say intended, but it was meant to be more of a balanced work where you have two sets of lovers. And Benedict and Beatrice were just so good and so funny that subsequent revisions by Shakespeare and performances made them more and more important in the story. A funny... Charles II owned a second folio, and next to Much Do of Nothing, he crossed out the title and he wrote Benedict and Beatrice. Oh, no. I, 
<laughs> which is so funny uh, to me. Or Beatrice and Benedict, because you got to put Beatrice first because she's even funnier than Benedict. Um, but yeah, it's they have had a long history of sort of taking over the story. And there is in, in the original play a whole bunch of plot involving Claudio and Hero and their relationship that is completely excised from this. And we really just focus on the the comedy of errors to make another Shakespeare reference of of the the comedy of errors of the lovers, Beatrice and Benedict, being convinced to love each other. But first we get this lovely little fight between the two of them in operatic form. Yes, yes. And just to uh, make clear that this fight is an ongoing, just as the love between Hero and Claudio is ongoing, it existed before the men went off to war, the fight between or the sparring between Benedict and Beatrice existed before the men went off to war. And this is just mm-hmm. a continuation of what had been going on before. Yes. My favorite thing is his opening is, hey, are you still alive? You're not dead yet. <laughs> and, and she says, how could I possibly die when you're here for me to make fun of? Right. opera for everyone and that was our titular characters Beatrice and Benedict in Berlioz's opera well 
They have sparred with each other, Beatrice and Benedict, and each have appealed to God to keep them separate from one another. Yeah, it's funny. They both end this sparring match, this particular sparring match, by saying, God, I would rather die than have to marry someone like you. It's funny, you know, nobody said anything about marriage to them. They just kind of came up with that idea on their own. Until they both did. (laughs) Interesting, that. (laughs) But this is... It, this has been on, I think, Benedict's mind a little bit because, of course, his best friend is, is getting married. And and just as Hero is sort of represented as the ideal, meek, beautiful woman who finds a fiancé and she's there's no problems here. She's just going to get married to him. <laughs> Claudio's a little bit like that for Benedict. Claudio yeah. is like doing, the, doing his duty and he's going and marrying the governor's daughter and he's kind of the goody two-shoes guy. Yes. (laughs) And so Benedict, but Benedict is, is a confirmed bachelor, I guess is what one of the things you could have, you could have called him. He's like, you know, women all love me, but you know, I'm not going to be taken in by that and end up with my neck in the noose. (laughs) So he swears to his friends in something where we'll listen to in a minute. He, he makes an oath that he will never marry. Right. At this point, Beatrice has stormed off. She's had mm-hmm. enough of this whole scene, and the, and it's just the men on stage now. And Don Pedro, the older fellow in this little grouping, says, aren't you tempted, Benedict? <laughs> nah, he's not tempted. Nope. Not a bit. It's like, I look at Claudio, I'm like, nope, I don't want that. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, and he can think of a thousand things he'd rather do. Uh-huh. Yeah, he says, I'd rather die in a convent. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing could tempt me less than marriage. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of my favorite lines he says is, this is in the play too, he says, you know, from a woman, you know, I was born of a woman. She gave yes. me life. And for that, I thank her. But afterward, I don't, that's all I need. I don't need anything else from them. Well, and she raised me. I thank her. Yes. My mother, my mother was okay. All the other women, nope. No, thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the reasons that he, he uses, and, and this is a much more developed theme in the, in the play, is that he sees women as inherently untrustworthy. And he says, he makes this reference to, he says, I never wear antlers on my forehead. So meaning I never want to be a cuckold. I never mm. want to be cheated on by my, by my lover, by my wife. And the idea that women are inconstant is a big theme among the men in their conversation and is a, as I said, a much more developed theme in the play where infidelity and the fear of infidelity is one of the things that drives a lot of the action in the play. Whereas here, it's it's more just a joke. You know, it's just, this is a thing he, he's, you know, oh, women, you know, never, never pin one down. They're always flighty. It's like kind of stereotypes about women. And that's, that's how Benedict thinks that he feels about women is that can't be trusted. And all of this comes out in this gorgeous trio that Berlioz has written for these three men to sing. <laughs> Oh, 
singing about the fact that he will never put his neck to the yoke of marriage. And he has said to Claudio and Don Pedro that if they ever should should catch him putting his, his neck on that yoke of marriage, then they will <laughs> hang a sign around his neck that says, here lives Benedict, the married man. 
Oh, the married man. And, and the they, worst epithet. <laughs> the worst. The worst possible. And they laugh that they will live to see him mm-hmm. pale with love one day. You know, I think maybe he's pushed them a little too far. Because when you <laughs> when you deny something, the lady doth protest too much, perhaps, is another Shakespearean reference. I'm just going to throw them out there. You just play you just, to play. Just little <laughs> Easter eggs. You just hide them, sprinkle them throughout you can your play, dialogue. Right, you can play the game. Which play is she referencing now? <laughs> <laughs> maybe it could be a drinking game. <laughs> well, I love in here that he... Uh, he throws in this line, never in my, is this is this Shakespeare too? I don't even know. Never in my life have I seen such matrimonophobia. <laughs> I don't think that's that is for sure not in the play. Um, but that is very funny. You know what is Shakespeare though, is sick and pale with love. That's Romeo and Juliet. Oh. Romeo says that the the moon is sick and pale with grief because Juliet is too beautiful that she's eclipsed the moon oh well yeah so he's reusing his he's reusing his metaphors there but um <laughs> well Berlioz has a little familiarity with Romeo yeah. and Juliet as well so it's true we'll save that for another time <laughs> but um but you know he Benedict has really protested a little bit too much and 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 that is going to lead his compatriots here to decide mm. that it's time that they take him down a peg well he storms <laughs> off and Presently, mm-hmm. <laughs> Don Pedro says to Claudio, well, <clears throat> there's only one wife for our friend Benedict. Right. Only Who, one person right. to match up with him, <laughs> and that's dear Beatrice. And I think there's a little bit of a flavor of like, we'll never, get, we'll never be rid of him if we don't take this into our own hands. That's right. He'll he'll keep raging until we match him up with somebody who can tame him. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the character of Benedict because... He's just kind of unlikable in a lot of ways. Like he's, I, I love the way Kenneth Branagh plays him in the in the Branagh Much Ado About Nothing from the nineties. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's like he's so annoying, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean he's perfect for her, but he's so annoying in his own way. You can tell Claudio and Pedro just behind their back are just like this guy. <laughs> yeah, well he's very self confident. He is, but I'm not sure there's a reason for that. But yes. <laughs> He says all the ladies love him. All except Beatrice, that is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after they decide that they're going to match him up with Beatrice, Don Pedro says, yep, leave it to me and I will, uh, I'll come up with a way to get those two together. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so we get um, it's it's a screwball comedy again, where it's kind of like a somebody is is going to trick another person into listening to this thing and and hearing over somebody's shoulder something they're not supposed to hear, but it's intentional. And so we've got this whole scheme that they put together. But before that happens, a very interesting thing happens in this opera. We have a character that does not appear in Shakespeare. Yes. And so Somorone enters. He is the musician. He is Maestro Somarone. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Somarone in Italian means donkey. Oh, that's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's meant to that's be. That's very Shakespearean. I'll yes. tell you that. <laughs> there is a character who is 
sort of a similar character in the play who sings one of the most famous things about the play is a, a song called Sigh No More. And we don't, you know, we we don't know what it would have sounded like originally, but there have been many versions that have been, been written. So there, music has always been a really important part of this play. And the, the song Sigh No More is a really beautiful meditation on love and women and faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And so it, it, it doesn't surprise me that that Berlioz found a, a maestro character to be invaluable to telling this story. Interestingly, this character is a bit of a buffoon. Well, the problem is that that Berlioz took out all of the funny buffoon characters that were in the original play, so he needed to to put them all together into like one composite character because there's a whole set of funny, rude, kind of like toilet jokes characters in the Shakespeare play that provide a counterpoint to the The trouble is they were intertwined with the very dark and dastardly characters and they all got jettisoned (laughs) as well. So yes. But, you know, you've lost the character called Dogberry. So mm-hmm. um, I guess it's it's good to have a donkey character. <laughs> and, and it gives us another chance to have another choral piece, mm-hmm. a couple of choral yes. pieces, actually. And Berlioz could give us some beautiful choral pieces. The choral piece that Zomaroni is going to present with this choir on stage arranged as a choir and all the musicians too. And and sometimes in performances, he'll just take advantage of the fact that you actually have your orchestra in the pit right there in front of you and you can use them. But it's an epithalamium grotesque. Mm. And it's more tendre et peu. In other words, die dear spouses or die dear sweethearts. Interesting. I mean, well, it's very odd, really. The con- once again, it's I think it's residue of the original play because there's <laughs> there's a whole plot. There's a whole plot about a faked death of a lover in that play. So I think that's we're getting it's little little breadcrumbs, just like we're leaving with our Shakespeare references. Yes, you know, I thought as I was as I was watching this opera, I was thinking a lot of it assumes or wants to assume that you are already familiar with the Shakespeare story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's likely that people would have been. People were extraordinarily familiar with Shakespeare during Berlioz's day. You know, we are still familiar. You can you can tell by the fact that I literally can't say sentences without referencing Shakespeare, sometimes without thinking about it, how much he's saturated culture. So many of the words that we use and the phrases we use. Well, you're special, Kathleen. (laughs) I'm a little more saturated than most, but you know, people say things like, oh, it's a comedy of errors. In, In Berlioz's time, I mean, people, people learn to read by reading Shakespeare. You, you had your family Bible and you had Shakespeare. That, that, those are the two things that you had to have in a household. Well, I mean, it, I think it depended what country you were in. But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, we, we do know that Berlioz himself was quite Shakespeare oriented. I mean, we won't go into the whole story of his first love with Harriet Smithson, who played Ophelia and his obsession, his idée fixe and the symphonie mm. fantastique. There, I've dropped a few breadcrumbs. <laughs> <laughs> you can it's go. never good to become obsessed with an Ophelia person. 
No, no. And uh, yeah, so there's, he, he has a long history with Shakespeare and his, and his love of Shakespeare. And one of the things in France that, that was quite appealing about Shakespeare, particularly if you were someone like Berlioz, was he, he broke some of the conventions. I mean, not that Shakespeare broke them because he was long gone, but the Shakespearean plays did not conform to the conventions mm-hmm. of French drama that French dramatists were expected to conform to in the 19th century. And so it was, it was avant-garde in its way, mm. again, even though it was pre-existing. No, I think that's, I mean, you can tell from the million different types of versions of Shakespeare plays that you see performed even today that Shakespeare can be extremely avant-garde, part of, part of his brilliance. I do find it interesting, his familiarity with Shakespeare and also how much he changed and edited it. One of my favorite little facts about the 19th century and Shakespeare is that it was very common, especially in Western Europe, England, and the Americas, to change Shakespeare as you saw fit. (laughs) There was just not the same respect for the holiness of the text. I mean, people would for performance, definitely cut whole acts, get rid of whole characters. There was nothing sacred about it. It was just, oh, this is all material. And Shakespeare himself often rewrote, changed things a lot. One of my favorite things is that there was a, a huge trend in, in making Shakespeare not be tragic. So they would, you would have- <laughs> The tragedies? The tragedies would be, re- so one of my favorite things is they rewrote King Lear so that that Lear and his daughter do not Cordelia don't die at the end. There's a no. whole version that that was performed far more frequently in Victorian England oh. than the original Lear because people didn't want to they didn't want a downer. I <laughs> and can't even imagine how that works. Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean it works at the end. They just don't. They they get up. They pop up. It's nobody's really dead and. It's hard to imagine how they would pull that off with something like Hamlet, where you've got, what, 10 bodies on the stage. Oh. But they would rewrite to make them happier. But also they would rewrite a lot of the bodier plays to make them more family-oriented. And there's a famous version called The Family Shakespeare that was published in 1818, which took all of the Shakespeare plays that they thought they could fix. Not all of them are in there because some of them were, were deemed too terrible they, they, to fix. They could not be fixed. <laughs> uh-huh. But then they took them and edited them to make them more moral, oh. to have more of a central moral that you could teach children with. So a lot of them were, were changed in that way. There's a very famous change to Othello, which I'll just tease. You can... <laughs> the family Shakespeare. Hmm. The family Shakespeare. So it's it's. I think you have to look at something like this as part of a, a long tradition of just taking the, taking the parts you like and changing things around and, and also really, really getting rid of the sad stuff. Because as I've hinted at many, many times, the original Much Ado About Nothing has a lot more dark storylines, especially with Claudio and Hero. You don't see any of that here. But it does end, even the original does end quite happily. It does. Somehow they find a way back to their, their happy ending. What you're speaking about makes me think of what we've done to fairy tales. Yeah. Oh, Gr- Grimm's fairy tales and things like that. We've certainly cleaned those up a lot to make them mm-hmm. more family friendly. Yeah, that's a really good way to think about it. It's kind of like the Disneyfication of Shakespeare before Disney came along. That's mm-hmm. that's exactly what it was. These Shakespeare for children almost. Mm-hmm. There's a very famous one called Tales from Shakespeare by Charles and Mary Lamb. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my favorite facts about that is that's one of those expurgated Shakespeare's. They rewrote it to be family friendly and, and sweet. And then 
this is terrible, but uh, sometime later, um, Mary murdered her entire family. No. <laughs> yeah. So it's this beautiful, sweet, like Shakespeare's all sunshine and light. And then like the real family, it's this, just this horrible true crime story attached to them. Oh, no. That I know. Is pretty much You'll never a, look at it the same way again. An argument against uh, that tactic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, on that, back to the grotesque epithalamium. <laughs> That was grotesque. It's a perfect connection. Uh, yeah, it's a perfect connection. Let's hear a little bit of this beautiful, but very odd, choral piece with our comic maestro. practices over as we are listening to Berlioz's Beatrice and Benedict and uh, Benedict's on stage unseen and we have the three other men Leonato the governor Don Pedro the victorious general and his right-hand man Claudio and those three other men within earshot of Benedict are having a little conversation Yes, they have set up a little trap for Benedict. They want to trick him into falling in love with Beatrice, as we know. And in order to do that, they have decided that they're going to speak very loudly, knowing he's nearby. Yes. Something that he's supposed to, you know, he's not supposed to hear, but he is supposed to hear. And so they are talking about how much they are sad because Beatrice is absolutely head over heels in love with Benedict, as they say. (laughs) Well, and there's no better way to make someone love someone else Mm -hmm. than to let them know without letting them know Mm -hmm. that they are loved. (laughs) It's true. You just need a little push. You know, somebody's into you and you're like, oh, maybe I'll reconsider. 
But they also take the opportunity, which I love, to uh, <laughs> to put in some <laughs> remarks that kind of take him down a little bit <laughs> in his own estimation. Well, um, yeah, they're his they're his friends, of course. Yeah, they're they're like, are you sure that she really loves him? This guy, <laughs> he's he's not easy, <laughs> right? Like he's not easy to love. But they go on and on that they're they're afraid that she could she loves him so much that she'll do she'll do a violence to herself they say, right? And they paint her in this light of like, well, you know, there's no way that Benedict could ever get over himself enough to love her, right? And so we just don't know what we're gonna do. Poor, poor Beatrice, and she's hiding it from him. She would never let him know that she's in love with it, which of course will work out perfectly because when Benedict will go up to Beatrice, and she doesn't seem like she's in love with him. They can explain that away by saying, you know, she's too proud. She's hiding it. She's hiding um, it really well. Yes. So well. So well. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, this is so much fun to me because it's Pride and Prejudice. Like, if that's the other thing with Beatrice and Benedict. Like, it's just a Pride and Prejudice story. It's like, oh, she's too proud and he's too proud. and mm-hmm. But eventually they'll come yes, together. Yes, yes, yes. And then we have Benedict by himself to process this information. Mm-hmm. She loves me. She loves me. And just as, just as in the Shakespeare, it must be requited. We always hear Mm -hmm. about unrequited love. I love this use of requited. Mm -hmm. It must be requited. I know. I love that too. It's like him saying, this is not going to be a tragedy. I will not let it be. I will love her back because it's my duty (laughs) to give us a happy ending. Yes, yes, yes. And and he also lets us know he's not being tricked. This is no trick because they were sad when they spoke about this. Mm-hmm. They were worried about her. Right. So I know I'm not being tricked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have given this careful consideration. <laughs> and so poor Benedict puts his, his neck right in that yoke. <laughs> he, you know, they put a banana peel right in front of him and he walks right and trips on it. <laughs> It's so easy. And so we see that Benedict has determined that it's going to be requited. And he says, I am going to be most frightfully in love with her. And that ends our scene. Sei il sole, 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewell. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by guest co-host Kathleen Vandewill. Hey, Kathleen. Hi again, Pat. I'm so glad you're here to help us with another Berlioz and another Shakespeare-based opera. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> it's a good one. It's really fun. It is. It's not word-for-word word Shakespeare, but there are a lot of Shakespeare's words. Yes, enough to make me happy as a Shakespeare nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, before we get back into more of Shakespeare's words, I want to take just a moment to say thank you so much to all the artists involved in the production of the CD that we're listening to today. This CD was recorded in 1978 with the London Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Sir Colin Davis, with the help of the John Aldous Choir. The role of Beatrice was sung by Janet Baker, Benedict, Robert Tier. Hera was sung by Christiane Edda Pierre, Ursule, who we're going to hear very shortly coming up, Helen Watts, and Claudio was Thomas Allen. Thank you to everyone involved in the production of this beautiful music. Just by way of recap, this wonderful opera, Beatrice and Benedict, is based on a Shakespeare play, and the opera premiered in Baden-Baden, Germany, that wonderful resort town, in 1862. The libretto, based on the Shakespeare play, was put together by Berlioz himself. And as we've talked about, some of Shakespeare's words were taken directly in French translation by Berlioz and others were left behind. But Berlioz himself gets the credit as librettist. Along that line, I just want to make a point about Berlioz as librettist. It's been observed that some of Berlioz's most lasting works in the repertoire, his vocal works, La Damnation de Faust, L'Enfance du Christ, and then even later on with revivals, Les Troyens, and then Beatrice and Benedict, are all pieces for which he was either entirely or mostly the librettist. It's an interesting observation. He, he certainly did have other works, just as you know, we've done Benvenuto Cellini, and it, it does get play, but but these other works tend to be played a little more often, and they're the ones, maybe he was more invested in them. I, I, I don't really know how to explain it, but that, that has been an observation, that the ones where he was involved as librettist are some of his more lasting in the repertoire works. Well, same with Shakespeare. <laughs> well, <laughs> slightly different situation, but there you go. All right, now... In, uh, 
in line with our opera helmet quiz time, would you recap what we've talked about as far as plot goes so far? Sure. So at the very beginning of our opera, we have met four lovers, four potential lovers. We have Claudio and Hero, who are engaged. And Hero is the daughter of Leonato, who's the the governor of Messina, this area that they're in. And Claudio is the sworn companion of Benedict. And Benedict is in love, maybe going to be in love with Beatrice, who is (laughs) Leonato's niece. So we've got these two mirroring pairs of lovers, as Shakespeare always likes to do. And then we have the Duke and the the general of the army who's been victorious, Don Pedro. He has visited Messina after his successful victory. War is over, and now it's time for for love, for marriage, and for a, a very merry war between Beatrice and Benedict. They have known each other for some time, and they always fight when they meet, and This time, all of their companions decide that, you know, it's been enough and we're going to trick them into falling in love with each other. (laughs) Or or realizing that perhaps underneath all those warring words, maybe they really are in love. Right, perhaps. Well, that is certainly the more romantic cast of it. (laughs) (laughs) So Don Pedro and Claudio have schemed to, to convince Benedict that Beatrice is already in love with him. They they spoke about her love for Benedict when they knew that he was eavesdropping and said that you know she was so in love that she was making herself ill and she could never tell him. Yes. And <laughs> and as it turns out in in a piece that we we will not hear because it's dialogue not yeah. sung. <laughs> in, a piece, in a piece that's more dialogue once again. Hero and her maid Ursul have done exactly the same thing to Beatrice. They they knew she was eavesdropping and they they spoke about how much Benedict was in love with her and and in fact berated her for being so hard and unfeeling and and hard to approach that he could never tell her. Yeah, it's interesting in this opera, it's not this scene is not played out. They just reflect on it. Mm-hmm. Hero and her maid just reflect on the fact that the scene has taken place. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I, that to me, a great loss, because those scenes are very, very funny in the Shakespeare play. <laughs> but uh, the trap has been laid for both of them, and it has worked for both of them. Especially, we have heard Benedict's response to that. That is what we heard at the very end of our first half, yes. where he has decided that you know her love must be requited, and he's going to change his ways and approach her instead of as a combatant, as a lover, next time he sees her. See, this is why I th- I think Berlioz is a, ro- well, we know he's a romantic, but this Capital is why- R and small r. <laughs> Correct. Uh, <laughs> because he falls, in the, in the lyrics here, he falls so hard. I will adore her, love her, worship her. He falls so hard in this one, all he, he just needs to overhear that she loves him mm-hmm. and he's all in. Yep, he is all in. All in. He leaves, you know, his his warfare behind and he's ready for love. And it remains to be seen if Beatrice is going to be ready as well. But one of the things that we do know is that Hero caught a glimpse of her face in a mirror mm-hmm. um, when she was saying that she thought that, that Benedict might die of loving her. And her face was, you know, she was so struck by this thought. And, and Hero Hero is pretty convinced that the trap is well set for her as well. Yes, yes, they have high hopes. And besides, if these two don't get matched up with each other, who else could they possibly be matched up with? 
<laughs> Very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to end Act One on this frivolous comedy. We're actually going to end Act One on this beautiful piece, this nocturne that Hero is going to sing with Ursul, this duo that they sing together. And it is one of the loveliest pieces and arguably one of the most admired pieces from this entire opera. This is the nocturne with Hero in Ursul, where Hero is thankful that her father has excused her from the banquet prior to the wedding. And she can simply enjoy the evening and the beauty of the world before she gets married. Yes, this is a beautiful piece. And it reminds me of when we were speaking of her aria, where it's it's not really it doesn't move the plot forward, really. It's just a moment to sort of sit and look at the moon and be in love and reflect on on how wonderful it is to, to be in her position. It's wonderful and also melancholy. She's crying and and Orsul ends this the song by by sort of taking her into her arms as as hero cries because she's so happy to be in love and to be about to be married but also there's just this deep melancholy that perhaps that her childhood her girlhood is ending it's very it's very deep and very beautiful and in a really kind of stark contrast to the comedy of the Beatrice and Benedict storyline it's hers is a much more deep and contemplative love, which does mirror the, the play in Much Ado About Nothing. Hero is a character who, there there's a lot of hijinks that, that ensue around Hero's marriage to Claudio that are left out of this. And, and in the second half, I'll, I'll tell you more about those, but there's a little bit of a shade of melancholy around her character that I think is reflected here.
for everyone and this is the opera Beatrice and Benedict by Hector Berlioz and we are ready to begin act two and before we get to hear the way Beatrice responds to the knowledge that she has overheard the trap laid for her that Benedict is in fact in love with her well maybe not in fact well in (laughs) fact but never mind Before we get to hear that, we have another scene with the invented maestro of the chorus and a staple of so many operas, the drinking song. Mm -hmm. Can't have an act two without beginning with a drinking song, at least in my limited (laughs) opera experience. Well, it does it does happen occasionally, but it is it is fairly common. (laughs) And in this drinking song, we sing the praises of the wines of Syracuse.
And that was a wonderful drinking song, one of Pat's favorite kind of opera songs, in my experience. (laughs) (laughs) And following the drinking song, we are at a masquerade ball. Always a fun thing to have. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take this chance to bring us up to (laughs) bring us up to speed a little bit on where we would be at in Much Ado About Nothing, just because... Well, I want to encourage everyone to go see that play too, because it's really good. (laughs) But this is the point in the story that I would say it really diverges a lot from what the opera has been giving us so far. In the first act or so of Much Ado, there is some stuff going on kind of in the background, especially with Don Pedro has a a bastard half-brother who thinks that he should be king and he's kind of plotting in the background. And there's a lot of scenes of him kind of in his henchman being evil and plotting (laughs) yes and his name is don john and he is he's very good at whispering into people's ears and causing them to doubt the people they should be trusting and that is his influence throughout the play is this sort of malignant whisper and so it's funny because it's contrasted with the the whispers and the the trickery of the lovers which is always intended to be positive in order to have a, a good outcome but in the Shakespeare play, that's balanced by the fact that Don John is, is whispering poison in, in people's ears, too. And one of the things that happens in this scene of the masquerade ball in Much Ado About Nothing is that Claudio in the play and Hero are not yet engaged. They just have affection for each other. And Claudio is very tentative. He's not 100% sure how to approach Hero and Leonato. And Don Pedro says here's what I'm going to do. I will put on my masquerade disguise and I'll pretend I'm you and I'll woo hero for you. What could go wrong? <laughs> and Claudio kind of has in, in the, in the Joss Whedon version, there's a really funny like reaction shot of Claudio being like, I don't know about that, but okay, yeah. you're the king. <laughs> and, but you know, he's like, okay, I guess that's a cool plan. And of course he goes and does that. But this sets up the the fact that Claudio starts to be kind of a little uneasy. Like, did she know it was Pedro? Is that who she's actually? Does she actually mm-hmm. want to be courted by the king instead of me? And so there's a little bit of uneasiness. But, mm-hmm. you know, all is well for, for a while because Hero agrees to marry Claudio and, and all is happiness. So there's a little bit of darkness and, and uncertainty about faithfulness and especially the faithfulness of women that starts to seep into the story at this point. Now, that darkness is not present in our in our opera. No, but it's a, none of that. <laughs> <laughs> took out all of the darkness, or for the most part. But later on, this will this will come up in Much Ado About Nothing because Don John's ultimate plot is that he wants to hurt Claudio because Claudio is close to his brother. And he just wants to kind of cause chaos. And he convinces one of his henchmen to seduce Ursul who is Hero's maid, Ursula, but does it in a way that Claudio sees their silhouette and they're in Hero's bedchamber and he thinks that it's Hero being seduced. And then he goes and denounces her to everybody that she is a wanted yep. woman. Yeah, and at exactly the wrong moment mm-hmm. for dramatic impact right there in front of the friar. Mm-hmm. Right the as they're ceremony. about to get married. Mm-hmm. So, and and that is a little hard for Claudio as a character to come back from that. You know, the, the play does end happily. It ends with two marriages. Mm-hmm. But in order to resolve all of that, Hero pretends to have died 
of shame. Well, she, fa- she faints. She faints. And everybody uh, conspires. She honestly faints in the beginning. <laughs> and everybody conspires to tell Claudio that she has died and that his words have killed her. You can see this is very, <laughs> starting to get in a very different well, direction we, from the we, opera. We have a, a, a friendly friar helping out. Yeah. Not, not quite the way he does in Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> but... <laughs> So basically the the idea is that Claudio has to find a way to restore her reputation and he agrees to the only way that that Leonata will forgive him is if he marries Hero's cousin who looks just like her. An identical copy, he says, yes. Right. <laughs> and, and all this time we've got the Beatrice and Benedict story is going on and you know we'll get back into their love story very shortly here in this opera but the, that's going on but there is a deeper element to it I think in the play because yes. once they have realized that they've come together it's almost it's a will they or won't they they almost don't and they finally do as we'll see soon but then after this incident occurs mm-hmm. Beatrice is wild for vengeance she wants Claudio to to be punished and she says to, to Benedict, she says, if you want to prove to me that you love me, kill Claudio. But even before she tells Benedict, I want you to kill Claudio, where Benedict is during all of this tells, tells me so much about his character and the truth of his affection mm-hmm. for her, mm-hmm. for Beatrice is that he's right there with the women. He's suffering right Mm -hmm. there with them. He's there with the friar. He's there with Hero. He's Mm -hmm. there with Beatrice. And he's saying, I I agree with you. I know she's innocent. I know there's there's a misunderstanding. I want to help. He is right there. Mm -hmm. And and I think he's showing the truth of his um, solidarity with Mm -hmm. them and also the compassion and love he has for, for Beatrice. Yeah. I mean, even before he... He doesn't want to accept her challenge to avenge in this traditional way, but I think he really, in a way, proves his love before he finally says, if I must, I must. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a lot of the play is about there's this war, this masculine war theme, and then there's the feminine world of marriage, and and those two are contrasted against each other. And Beatrice is this figure subverting femininity because she's engaging in this war. She even says, when she says that she wants him to kill Claudio, she she says, I wish I were a man. Right. You know, she says, I would would kill him if I were a man. And you're right. I think that Benedict really crosses over into the feminine side of that story after he tells her he loves her and then and this incident happens and yeah he sticks with them he never he's never back with the boys again he's he's fully her man um, and it's really it's really quite beautiful the way their relationship really deepens because it's so funny at the beginning and this merry war between them but then there's this darker side to it and his devotion is tested and he really comes through sort of unlike Claudio <laughs> his devotion is tested and and he he kind of screws up pretty bad but um the play, the play does end with, with the lovers all marrying because once Claudio agrees to marry this cousin, once they are married, he lifts the veil and it is Hero and she is alive again. Yeah. And I guess that's good enough. <laughs> it is. Well, it, it, it ends up being good enough, in fact. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it would, what's amazing is that you have these two beautiful works of art and there's any number of ways that the Shakespeare play can be put on I mean you've referenced the the Kenneth Branagh movie that you can see and the Joss Whedon movie that you can see and there are other 
film versions of the Shakespeare that you can see. And I think there are various versions of the Berlioz opera that you can see. But whether you see the opera first and you're curious about the Shakespeare, you've got a treat in store. Mm -hmm. Or if you see the Shakespeare first and you're curious about the opera, I agree. You have a big treat in store. Yeah, I, I enjoy agree. both. They're both mm -hmm. wonderful. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And 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 you know, one is a little bit more romantic comedy, and that's the one we're in now. So we'll um, we'll get back to their love story now. But um, yeah. but yeah. Okay. So after the drinking song, how does uh, Beatrice respond to this news that she's learned from her cousin and Ursul? She, you know, she's really struck by it. I mean, she's very deeply struck by the fact that she thinks this whole time he's secretly been in love with her and that he's he's sighing for her and dying of his love. And she says basically words that mirror his own. Although very interesting is she uses a lot of war language. Like once again, talking about that, you know, the Mary war versus the actual war. She wants him to come conquer her heart. She recounts her fear when he was at war, that he right. would die, which is all very, very beautiful. And, and this song is just, just a gorgeous, a gorgeous expression of the fact that she wants to be conquered. She wants to fall. Literally, she wants to fall in love with him now. So she is, by the end of this song, she's decided she's she's in. <laughs> yes, and she's reflecting on the way she felt and realized, oh, the way I felt, I was actually terrified that he would die in the wars. Mm -hmm. I was really afraid, and I wouldn't admit it to myself. And now I am admitting it. So... I remember this this aria that she sings, uh, another well-loved piece from this opera.
admit to herself that she's in love with Benedict. Hero and Ursul return to the stage and we get a beautiful trio with these three female voices together. Yes, and first they bless Hero's marriage. They say that Hero will not only have a husband, but that her husband will be her lover and will continue to be her lover. And then Beatrice says that she's she's afraid of being being enslaved by love of of love taking her freedom away being jealous of of all of these things and and, and they speak about how how frightening it can be to give yourself over and be vulnerable to love but also that it is worth it ultimately if you can give yourself over and be vulnerable in love Oh, 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 oh,
to Beatrice and Benedict by Hector Berlioz on Opera for Everyone, and we just heard the trio with Harrow, our ingenue and her maid, and also title character Beatrice, and they're getting ready for Harrow's wedding, and Beatrice has just admitted to herself that she's in love with Benedict, and I would like to just let you know that this piece, this beautiful piece, along with the next piece of music in the opera known as the Distant Chorus, these two pieces of music were added by Berlioz after the original premiere in Baden-Baden because the second act was quite short. It still is quite short. It's an under two-hour opera, and the second act is very short, and he added these two pieces, and aren't you glad we didn't have to do without that trio? (laughs) Yes, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful pieces in the whole opera. It's strange to think that it wasn't there at the beginning, honestly. I know. It's nice. It's nice to see what he comes up with when he needs to add something, isn't it? (laughs) it? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, it's followed by this distant chorus, which plays in the background when Beatrice is left sitting alone on a bench after Hero and her maid go off to get Hero ready for the wedding. And she says, oh, I'll, I'll be right along after you in a minute. And she just needs a moment to collect herself and think. And we're treated to this beautiful music while she thinks. Yes, because I mean, all of this has been happening kind of off stage. You know, I mean, she, Benedict and Beatrice have not met each other since the action of the whole opera, really. And so she's she's taking a moment to, to collect herself. And of course, then Benedict happens upon her. And at first, it's exactly as you would expect from their previous relationship, where they're, they're still fighting with each other. And yet, in a very Shakespearean way, they keep doing this <laughs> this beautiful little aside. So they'll they'll fight with each other, and then they'll kind of turn to the side and go, "Oh God, I love her." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like just to the audience, not meant to be heard by her. And, and Benedict keeps, "Oh, she's so beautiful," and, and Beatrice says, "Oh, I'm so sad because I love him." And yet they're fighting to each other's face, and, and the scene is always just so funny. And then she confronts him. She says, "What are you doing? You know, you're chasing me." You keep coming after me. And then she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm being so mean to him. (laughs) And she ends up just bursting into tears. And Benedict is so upset because this seems to confirm to him everything that he's been told, that she's in love with him and that she's going to die of love for him. And here she is weeping. But there's, there's no resolution here. And so both of them are left in this state of supreme agitation. So everything is, is unresolved between the two of them. It's, it's a kind of a powder cake of emotion. And then the wedding party comes marching towards them and, and they have to, to go take part in, in the wedding of Hero and Claudio. Right. Good friends all. They're mm-hmm. getting married. And we have another chance for another choral number with our beautiful chorus <laughs> singing in the wedding march.
almost done with this opera, but one storyline is still unresolved. Our lovers are agitated, they are confused, and they are standing at a wedding of their their two good friends, totally unsure of what their own romance is going to be. Oh, poor Beatrice and Benedict. Poor, poor kids. Honestly, I hope they work it out. Yeah. What are they? What do you think they will? Well, we've got only a few minutes left, so I certainly hope so. So, in true, just comic, hilarious, beautiful fashion, they don't work it out on their own. It's just sort of done for them, in the sense that Don Pedro turns mm-hmm. to turns to them at one point and Hero and Claudia are getting married and says, hey, I've got this other marriage contract. Just got a second one here. Somebody told me we needed another one. Convenient. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody kind of, you know, you can imagine everybody doing a double take. And he's like, who's still getting married? Who is it? And Leonardo, of course, is like, what about you guys? (laughs) And and the two of them are, are just totally overtaken by the moment. And Benedict rushes towards Beatrice and says, with this hope in his eyes, do you love me? Like, just tell me. (laughs) And she can't quite admit it yet. And she says this very, very famous line in the play. She says, I love you no more than reason. Yes. And, and he's sort of brought down by that. And then she's, wait, do you, what about you? Do you love me? And he goes, no, no more than reason. And then it all comes out. She says, but they told me that you were dying of love. And he's like, no, they told me you were dying of love. That's right. And then they're like, no, so you don't love me? He's like, no, no, I don't love you. Mm. And Leonardo's like, oh, come on, guys. Give it a rest. And then Claudio and Hero both pull out of out of their pockets. They've just had this on their person. Letters that Beatrice and Benedict have independently written about their love for each other. And when they're confronted with their own words, they can't they can't deny any longer that even though it may have started out as a trick to get them to fall in love with each other, it worked. And they do love each other. And <laughs> they Beatrice have written evidence now, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then Beatrice says in I, you know, I've said this before, but I think this is actually my favorite line in the play. She says, Well, you know, I only I'm only saying that I love you because I thought that you were going to die of consumption. <laughs> I thought you were on death's door. So I, you know, that's the only reason he says, I'm going to silence you. And then he kisses her. And that is the beautiful resolution of all of this tension. And they agree to get married. And, um, and it's quite, quite romantic and, and beautiful. But of course, Benedict's friends are not going to let him get away with what he said at the beginning that, you know, oh, yeah. they would have to hang, hang a sign, sign. <laughs> around his neck saying, here's Benedict, the married man. And so, of course, that's exactly what they do. And it all ends in, in laughter and love and harmony in the end. Yes, yes. And so our final two pieces of music, which we're going to play back to back here at the end of the show, are going to be here. You may see Benedict, the married man, using his own words and they give him this sign and the final, final piece where everyone joins in in joyous merriment is love is a torch, love is a flame. And we get our double wedding to end our comedy. As it should be. As it should be. Well, thank you once again, Kathleen, for joining me on this episode of Opera for Everyone. 
always happy to have your help. Thank you. <laughs> always happy to be here to talk about talk about Shakespeare, talk about Berlioz. <laughs> <laughs> for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera, opera is, is for everyone. everyone.